So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the ninth chapter of Luke. We're going to read 23 through 27 because they go together. But our focus this morning is going to be just on the 23rd verse. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Lord, we are so thankful that your spirit is here in our midst, that it illuminates us, that it opens our minds, and it takes the words that I say, um, which are completely inadequate, and applies them to the understanding, the logic of the mind, and then from there to the heart. And so we pray that your spirit will indeed be illuminating and applying this message so important and such a message for the church to hear, especially in the time in which we live. We pray that you will guide my words, that they will be your words and not mine. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you may remember that I started that message out by saying that the church had an enemy, a great enemy that had fought it ever since its inception for 2,000 years, and of course that enemy was the culture that has more of an impact on our behavior and our attitudes than I think any of us actually realize. Well, I want to start out this morning talking about another enemy, not so much an enemy of the church, although the church is certainly impacted by this enemy, but this is a personal enemy. This is an enemy that you face. If you are the Lord's, if you are a Christian, you face this enemy daily. It is an enemy that would undermine your relationship with God and hinder your growth as a Christian. It's not only an enemy, but it's an idol It's an idol that demands your worship, demands your time, demands sacrifices daily of your attention, of your imagination, of the agenda that you follow, of the resources that you have. It is an enemy that stands between you and God and, as I said, demands your worship. It's it entices you to sin. It, 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 it clouds your understanding and your vision. It's a ruthless overlord that rules over you day in and day out. And if you allow it, it will destroy you with a wink and a smile. What is worse about this enemy is that not only has it found its way into the church... But in so many churches now, it is not only allowed, it is not only tolerated, it is exalted and glorified and even worshipped as an idol. Now, I don't know if you figured out who this is now, but it's not the devil. It's not the culture that surrounds us. It's not even the pagan world. The great enemy your great enemy that I'm talking about this morning 
is the god or the goddess of self. Now, when I say that self becomes an idol, what I'm talking about is anything that stands between you and God is an idol. Anything that demands your attention over God is an idol. Anything that you worship and bend to and bow to and foster is an idol. And certainly we do that with self. But when I say that in so many churches in in, in the world in which we live, especially in the West, this idol is worshipped and allowed into the church, I'm talking about the corruption of a theology that is designed to worship the one God of the universe but has been twisted and turned to virtually worship self. I mean, the religions that have cropped up today are all focused on self. Sometimes we call it the name and claim it or the process. Prosperity theology or health and wealth or, 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 or even some kind of a carnal Christianity. We, we, we talk about a religion that is so focused on self that it really has forgotten that our calling is to worship the one God of the universe and him only. It is a religion that exalts self. It, 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 it reteaches that the beneficiary of the cross is us, that Jesus died so that we could live a life of ease, so that we could have everything that we want, that Jesus, instead of our Savior and Lord, the Lion of Judah, is more like a genie that we pull out of a bottle and we tell it what we want. And if, and, and, and if he doesn't give us what we want, it's, it's because we haven't claimed it with enough force. We have twisted and turned what it means to be a Christian. We have taught a gospel of easy believism and cheap grace. We have taught a gospel that is totally focused on selves, self-motivation, self-realization, self-satisfaction, self-worth and self-determination become the hallmarks of religion today. I like the way that John MacArthur puts it in his commentary on this passage. He says this quasi-Christian narcissism unabashedly promotes self-love, which characterizes the false teachers who preach it and focuses as they do on their satisfaction instead of God's glory. The God of self has become a major player in the evangelical world. And it has as much to do with the downward spiral of the theology of evangelicalism as almost anything else. Well, this morning, we are going to see what Jesus has to say about self. We're going to see what he has to say about the relationship between his disciples, his followers, and himself. And I can go ahead and tell you right now, it ain't Self. It's all about him. And it's not all about us. So that's what we're going to turn to. And that's going to be our focus this morning. Now, before we jump into our text, and, and as I said, let me go ahead and apologize. Uh, th- this passage that I just read, it, it, it goes together. There's a flow of thought. If you look at each one of the verses after verse 23, they start with the word for, which means that we're taking the, tr- the thought from the previous verse and continuing it on through. 
But verse 23 is focused virtually entirely on disciples, on believers. Now, when we get into 24 through 26, 27 is kind of a transition into the uh, the transfiguration. But when, when we get into that 24 through 26, even though there's an important message for believers there, it's, it's a, a poignant message and warning for those who worship the God of self rather than the God who is the only God who can save them. So I'm going to save that till next week. It's just too much to deal with this week. And I'm going to spend some time this morning on this one verse because this idea that Jesus gives us of radical discipleship and the call that he has on the believer's lives is not one that is being taught in most evangelical churches today. Now, before I get into the text, let's follow Luke's flow of thought that we have up until now. Luke has been hammering us up until this point with the, the truth that Jesus is the supernatural, miracle-working, divine Son of God. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And he's been doing that through the stories of his miracles, of calming the winds and the waves, and most recently with that that powerful present or that powerful articulation by Peter articulating the belief of the rest of the apostles when he says you are the Christ of God now in the very next passage we're going to see the culmination of that or the top of the apex if you will where we're going to see Jesus on the mount of transfiguration in his glory for just a glimpse But that is why last week when Jesus announced after this sort of trip up the mountain to talk about how he's the son of God, all of a sudden Jesus announces his passion for the first time. And, and, and he says that, that the son of man, the, the Christ who came to save the world must be, uh, go through suffering. He must be rejected and he must be killed. What a, Stunning and confusing uh, revelation that is that Jesus, the Son of God, is going to be killed at the hands of mortal men. Well, alongside that sort of paradox, we have another thing that Luke's been developing all through this, and that has been a subtle shift from the ministry of Christ to the ministry of the apostles. We've talked about apostling and how up until this particular point in time, Jesus has done all of the apostling, all of the ministry, all of the healing, all of the preaching. But then just recently, he sent the 12 out and sent them into the towns and villages of Galilee to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And soon it's going to be the 72. Now, we we notice the paradox of that, that the more important they become, the less important they become, the more they realize that it's all about the Spirit of God. It's all about Christ and it's not about them. And that's one of the lessons that we need to learn this morning. So sandwiched in between all of this, after Jesus makes it clear that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed, now he turns to his disciples. And he tells them, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're really, truly going to be my ambassadors in this world, then... Prepare yourself for suffering, for hardships, and even death, because we will follow Jesus in that. Now, with that kind of a night, that's the flow of thought that brings us up to the passage that we have this morning. So let's take a look at this. And again, I'm going to take my time going through this. We're going to look at every single word because this is such an important verse for 
the church to hear. And he said to all is the way that it starts out. Okay, so who constitutes all at this point? Luke is very vague. It doesn't tell us who is there. Mark adds a little bit for us. He says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. So we have one of those classic Jesus teaching scenes, just like the Sermon on the Mount or the house where his mother and brothers couldn't get in. You have Jesus sitting and teaching in the middle of his apostles, disciples around that, and then around that a whole crowd of people. Some of them are just curiosity seekers. Some of them are miracle chasers. And some of them, of course, are the antagonists, the ones we just talked about who will suffer and kill Jesus. The elders, the chief priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're all there. So the point is this, that when Jesus says these words, especially this 23rd verse, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to those who follow him. When he gets down to the rest of the verses, he's talking to everyone. So long story short, this is a message for each and every one of us. And if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, this 23rd verse is so hugely significant to you. So Jesus says to them all, it's a message for all of us. He goes on and says, if anyone would come after me. Now, he starts this out with a condition, if anyone would come after me. Now, once again, notice something that Jesus does quite often in his teaching. He starts with a very universal, all-inclusive word. When you talk about anyone, you're talking about everyone. You're talking about everyone that lives then and everyone that will live in the years that follow him. So that's an all-inclusive anyone. But then notice what Jesus does quite often. He'll take that anyone or that all-inclusive and he'll just whittle it way down to a very exclusive group of people. Because the ones he's actually talking about is not anyone, everyone. He's talking about those who would Follow him or follow after him. And so that's what we want to focus in on because that greatly reduces the number that he's actually talking to. If anyone would come after me. That word would, the New American Standard, I believe, translates it as wish, is not nearly as strong as the underlying Greek. Because when we talk about something that would happen or we wish would happen, it could be a whim or a fancy, something may happen and may not happen. Well, that's not really what the Greek word says. The Greek word speaks more of a decision, a willful decision out of one's own volition. In other words, if anyone would choose to Come after me and all that that means. So already we know that the world has just shrunk amazingly because now these are people who have the ability to make that choice. We're not going to get into predestination or election right now, although that is part of it. But anyone who chooses willfully to come after me. 
Now, when Jesus says, come after me in that sense, when he puts it in those terms, he's not just talking about following him as he roams around Galilee. Because after all, a lot of the people who are following him actually despise him, like like the Sadducees and Pharisees. And there's a lot of people who don't believe in him, like the people who said he was John the Baptist or one of the prophets risen from the grave. I mean, he's being followed by a lot of people. So that's not what he's talking about. When he talks about if anyone would come after me, he's talking about a radical separation with whatever life they had before. Whoever will come after me in radical discipleship to leave the life, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, about how how radical he's actually talking about, to leave the life that they had and to come after me. So in, in, in our sense, since Jesus is not here, It doesn't speak of an intellectual following of Jesus. It doesn't speak of just going to church or just reading your Bible occasionally. Nominal Christianity at the best. That's not at all what it's talking about. It's talking about a high level of commitment. Someone whose life has dramatically and noticeably changed. Okay, so again, as I said, this is just a very large group of people come down to Just a very few, those who are willing to go through that narrow gate and lose the baggage that they bring with them. So Jesus has has brought this down to a a, a very, very uh, small group of people. You know, when I I imagine this, or when I read it, there is an image that forms in my mind. And, And I don't know that this was the image that Luke intended, but it's certainly the image that comes to me. And that's the image that Jesus develops in John 10, that beautiful passage of the good shepherd. Because that's what the sheep would do in, in that environment in Palestine. They would follow the good shepherd. Today, we drive sheep. You know, sometimes you'll see people in these little vehicles, these little uh, uh, almost golf carts that are chasing them. What I love to see is, have you ever seen the, the little video clips that they do of the border collies that will take like a thousand sheep and drive them from one, one pasture into another? Those little Little dogs are amazing in what they're able to do. But they're driving sheep. And then the shepherd comes behind them. But that's not the way that it was done in Palestine. It was done because the sheep knew the voice of the shepherd. And they would come after that shepherd. The shepherd would lead them out. Just as Jesus says. When he has brought them out. Talking about the good shepherd. Um, out all his own. He goes before them. And the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. Brothers and sisters see the image. It's, it's not getting alongside Jesus. Come on Jesus. Let's go tackle the world together. And it's certainly not. As so many charismatics do. Getting out in front of Jesus. And saying come on. Let's pray Jesus along. Because he needs some help. In what he's going to do in this world. No the image that we have. Is following behind him. Behind his lead. Keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the hem of his robe. We're followers, folks. We're disciples. We're not leaders. We follow Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the imagery that Jesus has given. Anyone who is going to make the, the active, active volition to be my follower, to hear my voice and let me lead them out of where they are into green pastures and running beautiful crystal waters. Those are the ones 
that I'm talking about. Radical discipleship and all that that means. Well, that's the condition that he gives. Anyone who would come after me. Now he's going to give us three requirements of what that means. Those who would come after him. There's going to be three things that he says that that person must do. None of them have anything to do with self. Okay. First of all, deny self. Secondly, to pick up their cross. And then third, daily, as Luke says. And then thirdly, to follow him. So let's take a look at those. First of all, he says that they will deny himself. Whoops. There goes most of modern theology right there. There goes the me first, me self-motivation. Jesus died so I could have a better life, the better me, you know. It, it all about is my self-determination and my self-motivation, my self-preservation, my, my self-esteem. All of that just goes out the window because Jesus has said, if you are really going to be my disciple, then you will deny self. Now, I've talked an awful lot already this morning about self. I probably should go ahead and define what we mean by self. Because self is pretty much the essence of who a person is. It's the the total package. It's mind and body and soul and and, and inclination. It it is the imagination, the, the agenda, the goals, and especially the will, the volition of a person. That is all wrapped up in what we see as self. Now, does that mean that what Jesus is saying to each and every one of us, if you follow me, you've got to ditch self. Your self is evil. You need to loathe and hate self. And you need to follow me as some kind of a mindless puppet or or, or some kind of a different person. You take on a completely different personality. Well, you do to a degree, but it's a little more complicated than that. No, Jesus doesn't want us to deny Everything that we are, because after all, we are actually made in the image of God. There's a particular aspect of who we are. Now, don't get me wrong. Even in our redeemed self, which I'm going to talk about, if that redeemed self becomes a God to us, then we have completely gone back on on what this, what he's talking about. But pretty much he's talking about two selves, if you will. You see, here's what happens. When someone is saved... As Jesus told Nicodemus, he's born again. In other words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, immediately when that happens, there is, is, is a regeneration. There's a rebirth. God takes away a heart of stone that is incapable of loving him and replaces it with a heart that loves him, that desires to do his will, that wants to follow him and doesn't follow him out of obligation, follows him out of love and a desire to do his will. And so therefore that heart, that self is what God will cultivate and, and, and through the process of sanctification, that's the self that needs to become totally predominant in our lives. But then there's another self. And, and, and you see immediately there's this battle between the old and the new. It's not that we're schizophrenic. It's, it's that there's this old self that's still rooted in our sinful fallen nature. But there's this new self that is a new creation in Christ. That's the way Paul puts it to the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So one of the very primary tensions of Christianity is a tension between the old self and the new self. The new self must take over. The old self must slip into the background. And through the process of sanctification, if we could kill it all together, we would. Because the new self wants to follow Jesus, wants to please him, wants to be his, doesn't want to rule, doesn't want to get in front of him, and isn't interested in self. Like the way Paul puts it to the Ephesians, Brother Freddie read a longer version of this in the moment of the word, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So in other words, there's a new self. So what Jesus is saying to deny the old self (laughs) and and, and don't let that old self raise its ugly head. And, And that's something that's going to have to be done daily, brothers and sisters, because that old self wants to rule. That old self wants to master you. An old self loves the darkness and wants to stay in the darkness and will fight until you go to be with the Lord to gain control over you. But through sanctification, we will not let that happen. Well, that's what we mean by self. Now, let's talk about that word deny. What is Jesus talking about when he says to deny self? That's pretty strong words. It's the same word that was used of Peter when he denied Christ. It is a word that means to renounce, to disavow, to, to, to totally and completely and utterly separate yourself from, to completely reject. So when Jesus says to deny self, first of all, he's talking about that old self that still wants to rule in his place and to let the new self, the new creation that is in Christ, take the lead and guide you into all kinds of wonderful things that he wants you to do. Now, again, this central dynamic between the redeemed self and the old self is the tension that has pretty much been forgotten in these these days. This is a message, brothers and sisters, for the modern church, because you see what the modern church teaches is that the old self is just fine. That you don't need a new self. You, 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 you just simply come down and say a couple of words, walk down the aisle and, and, and say a prayer and boom, you're in. You're a Christian and you know, as far as changing your life or doing anything different, that's not necessary in the slightest. Easy believism, cheap grace. Well, Jesus has something to say about that. He says in Mark, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. His word, not mine. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You cannot honor God with your lips and not with your heart. It simply doesn't work. To walk the aisle and say that you're a Christian because you, rep- you, you recite a prayer and then to go on worshiping the God of self simply doesn't work. It means that you never really knew Jesus in the first place because you don't have that heart that desires to follow him. And it doesn't doesn't want to serve self anymore, but actually wants to serve and follow him. 
it's not my purpose today, and I'm not going to do it. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to do it. To, to start, and I didn't do it last week either, to, to get really negative about what is being done out there today and, and the health and wealth gospel and the focus on self and to call names and to, to, to really acquaint you with that. It, it, that's not my focus. My focus is to tell you what Jesus said about you and him in relationship that it is. That's my focus. But, you know, I do notice something. Um, I, I, I know it's an inconsistency. I don't really study these guys that much. Uh, I, actually, they make me mad, and I don't like to get mad all the time. So, uh, I, But I do keep up with what they're saying and, 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 and how they're twisting the true gospel. But there's something that I have noticed. There's an inconsistency. You know, when Jesus taught, when he taught us as disciples, there was a very important aspect of that teaching. It starts out in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest teaching sessions in those Beatitudes, that that's what we call them, that state of being of blessedness. Jesus says, blessed, blessed, in a state of blessing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who recognize just how worthless self is when it comes to standing before the great white throne of God. And you have all that red ink that we talked about last week in your debit column and absolutely nothing in your credit column and the inability for self to make one difference and to take one of those sins away. Okay, Blessed is the one who recognizes that. Blessed is the one who mourns over their sins, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the ones that recognize in contrition and repentance and humility that they cannot save themselves. And it goes on throughout those Beatitudes. Jesus taught that not only is this not about you, that the, that the person who is truly his disciples is going to deny self, but also have this overriding humility. There's going to be a, a noticeable contrition and repentance in those people. And yet when I look around me at some of these guys out there, some of these celebrity pastors, and I, I see them in the pulpit, or I, I see them dancing around on stage doing all kinds of crazy antics, or uh, on their video clips, or on their blogs, or the books that they write, or, or the podcast. There is one Almost universal trait that I recognize in every single one of them that I've seen. And that is arrogance. There is such a supreme arrogance that you see in the pulpits and, 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 and churches today. That, that that's not what Jesus taught. That's not the lesson that we have here. It's not a lesson of self and it's not a lesson of arrogance. It's a lesson of humility and submission and surrender and love following Christ. So therefore, I, 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 I see the inconsistency. So this is so much a lesson that we need to hear today. Well, anyway... First thing that he says is, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, you deny self, which, which, I, which I said just kind of really cl uh, clears the, the, the playing field of so many um, self-focused religions. But then he goes on and says, he makes it even more poignant when he says, 
and to pick up your cross daily and follow me. All the synoptics use this, almost word for word. Luke is the only one who adds that word daily, really emphasizing that that old God of self is going to keep on trying to rule your life and to control it. And you're going to have to pick up this cross literally every single day if you are going to be the disciple of Jesus. So, so what is he actually saying? Uh, what's the image that Jesus is creating? Now, it's not the image that comes to many of our minds. Um, right off the bat, we're Christians. We're 2,000 years after Jesus. We, we know what happens on the cross. So we think of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa and, and Jesus on the cross. But you have to remember, this is the first time that Jesus has shared this with his apostles. Uh, and he didn't even say he's going to have to go be crucified. He just says that he's going to be killed. So, so, so that's not the image that Jesus would be creating in the minds of the people he's talking to. It's a very graphic image that he's, he, he wants us to see or wants them to see, especially at that time. Now, it's an image that was familiar to each and every one of the people who was listened to because the Romans utilized crucifixions throughout their empire. You see, Rome had a really great battle plan as far as what they did. Rome was all about two things. They were about money and about power. And one fed the other. They went back and forth. In other words, the more countries that they conquered, the more taxes they could get. The bigger army they could get, the more countries they could conquer, the more taxes they would get. Now... In order to get those taxes, the Romans wanted peace. It was called the Pax Romana. They wanted peace because peace brought prosperity. And so therefore, more prosperity meant more taxes for them and bigger armies for them, which meant more conquest. So it all kind of rolled together. So one of the ways that they kept the peace was through the horrific execution of crucifixion. And, and, and they did it very publicly. They, they wouldn't execute somebody, crucify them like in the courtyard of, of the prison, away from all of the eyes. No. What they wanted to do was make this as public as they possibly could. So they would take the person, you've seen this on movies and on TVs and different things, they would take the person who was headed towards the place of execution and they would strap the cross across their shoulders. Now, I know in movies and TVs, you normally see them carrying the whole big cross there. More than likely, that's not the way it was. The The, the vertical part of the crosses were kind of stationary on hinges. They popped down and popped up so they could use them over and over again. It was the cross beam that either they would tie their hands to, then eventually when they got there, as it was in the case of Jesus, they would nail their hands and feet to that cross beam. But when you saw someone walking through town with a cross beam usually stripped almost naked, if not completely naked, covered with blood because they've already been beaten, on their way to the place of execution, you knew something about that person. The image that came to your mind was horrible, torturous, eventual death. That is exactly the image that the Romans were interested. You see... 
they, they, they didn't do this quickly either. The, one of the horrible things about crucifixion was that it was designed to last not only for hours like Jesus did. Jesus was unusual. He died in six hours. But to last literally for days, two, three days, they would leave the body up there. And so they would crucify them in a very public place, usually right outside the gates of the city, where everyone coming and going from the city would have to walk by those horrible, screaming, crying people. And then sometimes after they were dead, and I'm sorry for the graphic nature of this, but it's the truth, they would allow the corpses of those people to stay on the crosses and literally rot until they fell off by decomposing. It was a reign of terror, okay? And one that the people were very, very familiar with. So that's the image that Jesus is giving about his disciples. You want to come after me? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. So what does he mean by that? How are we to interpret that, especially in our modern context? Well, First of all, let's talk about how not to interpret it. And I've already said you're not going to interpret it in seeing Jesus. Now, as a Christian, that's almost impossible for me. Because to talk, say the word crucifixion, to say the word cross, to me, it's really personal, very emotional. And I see my Lord making his way down the Via Dolorosa towards that crucifixion. So I can't completely separate Jesus from this, but it certainly was not the image that he's telling the people around them. And we also want to be very careful that we don't see this in its sort of colloquial sense that it has become. I'm sure you've heard this, and many of you have probably said this, when something, some minor discomfort or inconvenient happens in your life, you say... That's my cross to bear. It could be a troublesome teenager or a nitpicking mother-in-law, whatever relationship, an overwearing boss. Oh, that's my cross to bear. It could be a headache that comes back over and over again or some kind of mild discomfort. Oh, that's my cross to bear. Well, no, it's not. Okay, that's not the imagery. I mean, I realize that's in its colloquial use, but I've already given you the image of what it means to bear a cross. So what it does mean, brothers and sisters, and, and, and here's, we can't escape this. Don't sanitize this. You can't. There's no other, well, there is another way to look at it, but there's certainly this way that you have to look at it, that what Jesus is referring to his disciples is the possibility, if not the probability, of following him in suffering and hardship and ultimately in torturous death. That's what he's saying. That, that that's where I'm headed. You are going to follow the same path that I follow. When you go through that narrow gate, you leave self behind, but there's glory on the other end. But in between, it can get really, really difficult. And so therefore, there's the idea of, of suffering. There's the idea that suffering is certainly possible. Now, let me ask you this. Do you, is, is that what Jesus is actually saying to us? That if you want to be my disciple... You have to die miserably in some kind of miserable, awful kind of way. That's a great recruiting tool, isn't it? Well, of course he's not saying that. But what he is saying is that if you follow me, if you truly are my disciple, then 
persecution and suffering and even death is more than a small possibility in your life. I mean, during the early church, we, we saw the martyrs that died going to the cross, some of them, burned at the stake, some of them, put into the Colosseum to be eaten by wild animals, some of them. Throughout the history of the church, we have seen over and over again the martyrdom of the saints. And right now, I am told that more Christians are being martyred for the cause of Christ throughout the world in places like North Korea, the Middle East, or China, places where Christianity is not allowed that martyrs are still dying in greater numbers than ever. So here's what Jesus is actually saying, not just to his apostles, but to you and to me. That if you follow me, there's a very good chance that you're going to suffer in some way. And, and I don't think any of us will actually know how we would respond to having to make the choice of either standing up for Jesus as our God or catering to self as our God. Because if someone were to ask me, as they asked Polycarp, the old man that was a disciple of John in his 80s, and they asked him, okay, will you deny Christ? And he said, no, I can't. He's been my Lord for all of these years. And they burned him. He, he, he made that conscious decision. He was given that choice. And so many Christians were given that choice. Deny Christ and uphold self or uphold, die to self and deny Christ or, 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 or accept Christ. And that's the reason that so many people died in that sense. I'd like to think that if that possibility presented itself to me that I would indeed die to Christ. I don't think any of us actually know until that happens. I mean, I'm like Peter, you know, walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. These other bums, they might desert you, but not me. I'll die for you. And we saw what happened to him. But I would like to think that that the, 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 the same kind of faithfulness that we have seen in martyrs for so many years would be a kind of faithfulness that I would have. But there's an, another meaning here. And I, actually, I think it's the, 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 the primary one. Yes, Jesus is telling disciples that you, you have to be prepared to suffer and to die if necessary. That doesn't mean you go out and try to look for it. It just means that you're willing, you're that much of a disciple. But there's something else that it means here. In other words, when you saw a man, and by the way, in my readings, if you, any of you have read differently, let me know. Because in my readings, I've never heard of a woman being crucified. Um, it's all, it was always men, um, at least in my readings. But if you see a man walking through town carrying his own cross, there's something that you know about that man. By the way, let me share something with you that, that I, I did unearth in this week's study. I shared it with the class on Wednesday night. And, and this was the research done by a scholar that I trust. I haven't done this myself, but I trust that he has, when he, if he would make a statement like this, that he would at least have exhausted as many sources as he possibly could. He says that in all of ancient literature, of the millions and millions of people that the Romans crucified, there is not one record of a survivor. Not one survivor 
Every single person, as far as we know from history, every person who picked up their cross and carried it through town ended up dying. The Romans were really, really good at what they did. So when you saw a man bearing his own cross and walking through town, you knew something about him. Whatever he was, whatever his identity was, was gone. It was left behind. That, that It didn't matter what his life was, how young or how old he was. It didn't matter if he was rich or if he was poor. It didn't matter if he was a moral man or a thief. It didn't matter if he was a leader of the community or a scallywag in the street. All of that was gone. He had no past, no identity. His only identity was in that cross. That's all that he had. Brothers and sisters, what an incredible image that is. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Is to whoever we were, whatever we did, however we sinned, and all the blasphemies that we might have shared, anything that we did, that's all gone. That's wiped out. It doesn't define us anymore. The only thing that defines us is the cross. And not our cross. His cross. We are defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are disciples of the one who went to the cross. And he died, yes, but he rose from the grave. And while he was on that cross, he paid for our sins. So that we might have relationship with God. That's our identity. And if you pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you you share that identity with the world. Because that defines you where who you were does not. One last thing that Jesus says. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And there, once again, you have it. But it it brings something to mind. We talked about it earlier when we talked about what it meant to come after him. But it, it also brings the fact that that this is not a random set of events. That the kind of suffering that Jesus is talking about is not the ascetic beating himself on the back to try to try to uh, to bear his own cross, if you will, that way. No, if there's any suffering that's going to be done in this dynamic, it is suffering for Christ. If there is any death to be faced, it will be a death died for Christ. If there is an identity to be lost. It will be the old self and the new self, the new creation, the new person in Jesus Christ is the one that takes over. It's all about Jesus and not about self. Not at all. One other thing I want you to see as far as this following Jesus. When we follow him... It's not following him just because we have made our decision to do so. It, it, it speaks of, of an obedience. It, it, it speaks of following him because you've submitted and surrendered yourself to him. You are his lock, stock, and barrel. You have made a sharp cut distinction from whatever you were. And now you follow him into any place that he would lead you. And, th- and that is not just a call to radical discipleship. That is a call to radical obedience. How is it possible 
that you can walk down an aisle, say a few words, and then walk away and still serve self and be totally and completely obedient to Christ. You can't. Jesus said several times, and you know this, in his great uh, um, dissertation, his upper room discourse, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Part of this, this following after Jesus is to follow him in absolute and complete obedience. There's one other thing about this, and I'll draw some conclusions. <laughs> There's no turning back, folks. There's no turning around. Somebody's carrying their cross through town. They don't say, you know something, I think that was a mistrial. I'd like to change my plea. You know, Let's go back and do this whole thing over again. This didn't turn out the way I planned. No, when you're on your way to the cross, your identity is gone. There's no turning back. The idea of cheap, nominal Christianity and discipleship, Sunday-only, Christmas and Easter type of discipleship, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking total commitment when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And there is no turning back. There is no returning to what you could have said or could have done. But don't get this wrong in what I'm saying. I, I, I need to kind of rephrase some of this because it, it's, it's not just a command. It's not like Jesus comes into your life and he says, okay, I want you to give up everything that's fun. <laughs> I want you to give up everything that's beautiful. And all I want you to do is sit around and, uh, you know, uh, 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 ignore the world and hate the world and loathe yourself and hate yourself. Uh, uh, that's what I want you to do. No, it's not. that's not it at all. You see, it's your fallen self, the old self that wants to hang on to the life that you left. It's your new redeemed self that wants to follow Jesus out of the sheep pen into green pastures and clear waters. What Jesus wants to do, brothers and sisters, is to lead you out of the sewer. And it's the old self that wants to hang on to the slime of that sewer and bathe themselves in it because that's what they are, that's, that's what they consider to be good. And Jesus wants to take you out of that into his marvelous light. So it's not a bad thing. It's not a, it's not what you give up. It's actually what you gain. Now, as I said, I had originally intended to go on through the rest of um, these verses. There is information that needs to be shared in there about apostles, about disciples. But I'm just simply going to push it till next week, maybe talk about it in the after church a little bit, because I want to stay on this track. I want to draw some truths from this. And, 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 and I challenge you to listen to them because this is, this is, I believe, very strongly what Jesus is establishing here. First truth is this. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. The world that you live in is the illusion. The kingdom of heaven is the reality. Jesus said, you remember this conversation with Pilate when he came to Pilate and later on Pilate's going to say what is truth. Jesus says, this is the reason that I came to share reality with you. The way that he puts it is this. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, what Jesus came to do is to explain to us that there is a reality that is other than the reality that we give our lives to. That that the reality that we think is reality, that we wake up to every day, that we spend our lives and our energies and our resources pursuing is not the actual reality. There's another reality, a stronger reality, a tangible reality, and that's the kingdom of God. Now, the skeptic says it can't be because I can't touch it. I can't see it. I can't feel it. And if God would only come here and cause something to float around in the room, then I would believe in him. No, you wouldn't. You'd find another reason not to believe in him. You would simply ask for some other sign. You'll never believe in God because you hate him. You're at enmity with him. And the rest of these verses are for you. Jesus tells us, those who follow him, that the reality that you live in is not the real reality. You are citizens of another kingdom. And I want you to see that. I am the one who has come to share that with you. The second truth is this. The kingdom of God exists here in one sense and in heaven in another sense. It, it, it exists here in the, in the here and now and in the not yet. But that kingdom has a king. And that king has called you out of darkness. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, if you have been transformed, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and Jesus has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he commands you to walk as children of light. He goes and says in John, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so therefore, what he is telling us is that uh, the light needs to shine. That we are sons and daughters of light. That our focus is on Christ and not on self. Self get left behind. Self is only going to be an impediment What we really actually want to do is to follow Jesus and to follow him closely. You see, the God of self wants you to spend your time and your energies building castles in the sand. That's basically what we do here on earth. We create these beautiful castles. We spend all of our time and our energy and our money and our resources. And that's what we're all about, building these castles. But then just like the tide comes in and totally wipes that castle away as if it did not exist, everything that you do on this earth you will leave behind. And you will stand before the great white throne of God. And there is only one thing that will matter to you at that time. And that is what you have done for Jesus. Not for some leader. Not for some church. Not for some charismatic preacher. But what you have done for Jesus the Christ. Following him in radical discipleship. That's the only thing that matters. Because the king has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Third truth. You shine the light of Jesus in this dark sewer of a world. You're probably going to suffer for it. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to happen. And it certainly doesn't mean that you go looking for it. But if you are the kind of disciple that Jesus is here calling 
too. He's not talking about health and wealth and prosperity. He's not talking about getting ahead and having all that you need and, and, and all that you want and living in perfect health for the rest of your life. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. He's saying that if you follow me, then you're following the footsteps of the God who came and suffered at the hands of mortal men. And if you will follow me, you will more than likely do the same. Jesus put it this way, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you if you are persecuted and reviled and hated Boy, that doesn't fly with the me first religions of today, does it? But that's what Jesus is saying all through the Gospels. He is saying that if you follow me, more than likely you're going to suffer. Oh, but this suffering, brothers and sisters, is temporary. It's not going to last. Our life is is indeed a wisp. It, It is a blink and we're gone. That's why Jesus said also in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy, where, tre- where uh, thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. Paul put it this way. I love the way he put it to the Corinthians in his second letter. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Light momentary affliction. Paul, beaten countless times, stoned, thrown outside for dead, thrown in prison more than anything else, eventually beheaded by by Nero for for preaching the gospel. Paul, momentary affliction, light affliction. Yeah, compared to the glory that awaits us, which is my my fourth point and my final one. The kingdom to which you belong, your citizenship is in a better kingdom than the one that we live in. That the kingdom that Christ has set aside for us is a place of untold glory. And it is a place where what we do in this world, in this life, Builds up treasure for us. As we just read Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount. There is treasure. There is recompense. There is reward for those who follow closely behind him. Paul put it this way. I has not seen. Nor has the ear heard. Nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. What a glorious promise that is. The promise of eschatological, an eternity of blessing. But you know something? Listen carefully. Don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. 
Paul said that if indeed there's no resurrection and this life is all there is, that among all people on earth, we are the most to be pitied. And I agree with that. I do not doubt that there is a hereafter. I do not doubt that there is a place that the Lord has prepared for us. But if there wasn't, the only reward that a Christian has, that a disciple has, is not just in the not yet, it's in the here and now. If this world was all there was, I would still be a Christian. There is no comparison in my life with richness and fullness and, yes, excitement and adventure as it, it is now before it was. Are there hardship? Yes. Are, are there discouragements? Yes. Are, are, is the road sometimes so hard that I, I feel like just laying down and forgetting it? Yes. Oh, but the, the, the glory of, of what is done on the inside of how Christ fills us. I would never give it up, nor would any of the martyrs who went to their death saying, no, I'm sorry, Jesus is Lord of my life. So my dear friends, actually my dear brothers and sisters, because that is the only group that this is directed to, because only Christians have a choice here. Otherwise you choose according to your fallen nature. But Christians have a choice. Which God will rule your life? Will it be the God of self or will it be the God of heaven? Will it be the God that is all about you or will it be Jesus Christ who came and died for you? Well, let me tell you something about that choice. Only one of those gods can give your life meaning. Actually, I think that's what everybody's looking for, isn't it? They're looking for some kind of meaning, some kind of significance, some kind of purpose. Well, the bane of evolutionary thought is that we have no significance or meaning whatsoever. You are nothing but an overgrown German. You are going to do nothing but return to the dirt from which you came. You are a cosmic accident and you have absolutely no meaning whatsoever if self is your God. But there is so much more that... This comparison, because only one of those can deliver the promises that he makes. Only one of those can truly bless you and bless your life, because only one of those gods can save you. Only one of them can redeem you. Only one of them died on a cross with your sins upon his back to atone for those sins. Only one of them can forgive you of those sins. Only one of them can impute you with his perfect righteousness so that you can be reconciled with a holy God. So that you can have relationship eternally with that holy God. Only one of those gods has prepared a place for you so that where he is, you may be also. Only one of those has set aside a place at his table for the wedding feast of the Lamb that has your name on it. Only one of those can set aside treasure for you in heaven. Only one of those is really God. And I can tell you this. It ain't self. You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, as we digest these words, and I know that sometimes it takes time to get it out, but Lord, as we digest these words, let us reevaluate each one of us, our life. Let us reevaluate our relationship with you. Let us reevaluate our 
discipleship. Let us reevaluate how we stand in your presence. And, 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 and may we take this statement out of your mouth multiple times in the gospel. May we take it to heart. May we truly deny ourselves, loving ourselves because you love us, recognizing that we were made in your image. I'm not talking about self-loathing, and you know that. But certainly not worshiping ourselves or bending the knee to ourselves, but worshiping you and you alone, giving you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.